So if you have a Bible, please open it now to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 to 7. Today marks the second week of our Advent series that we've begun. And as Pastor Paul mentioned last week, we are taking our cues for each week of this series from the verses of joy to the world. So this week, our cue comes from the second verse, which begins with the line, Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. That proclamation that our Savior has come and is reigning is one of the most significant themes of the Christmas season. It is the essence of Advent, the heart of why Jesus has come. Now, also remember that last week, Pastor Paul reminded us that Advent not only refers to Jesus' first coming and his birth, but also his second coming. And that's something we will keep coming back to throughout this series. And it's something I want you to keep in mind, to think about as we turn our attention to our text this morning. So hopefully you have your Bibles open to Isaiah 9. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in Isaiah 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the end and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now Isaiah was a prophet who served in the southern Israelite kingdom of Judah some 700 years before the birth of Christ. He prophesied near the very end of the line of Davidic kings, before the destruction of Judah by Babylon. And so a large part of this book of Isaiah is dedicated to these prophesying coming judgment and destruction on the people of Judah for their continued rejection of God. Yet interspersed throughout these dark prophecies, is a steady stream of messianic hope. In the midst of darkness and judgment, there is the light of hope. And that's exactly how this passage begins, with the declaration that those who are in darkness have seen a great light, that there is a promised salvation for a lost and desperate people, salvation in the form of a child, a child who will come, who will redeem and restore the people of God. Now, in the 21st century, we have the benefit of knowing exactly who this child is. We know the full story. We know that the Son of God was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and laid in a manger. Yet it's helpful for us to stop and consider how the Israelite people would have heard this prophecy and what they would have expected this child to come and do throughout the years as they waited. So that's our first question this morning. What will this child come to do? 
The first thing we see in the text is that he will come to save. We see this clearly in verses 2 to 4. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They will rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, and the staff for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as the day of Midian. So it's pretty clear in this text that this promised child will come. He will come and liberate and save the Jewish people from their oppressors. And this would have been a welcome promise to the people in Isaiah's day. They lived throughout the dwindling of Judah's kingdom until there was hardly anything left. Remember that David established the kingdom of Israel, and Solomon grew it until it was a majestic kingdom. But it immediately began to decline, and things got worse and worse until there was hardly anything left of this kingdom. So they clearly would have welcomed the message of a great deliverer who would come, a Messiah who would save them from their many adversaries and powerful oppressors. And this desire for salvation, this desire for liberation, flowed steadily through into Jesus' day as well. From basically the time of Isaiah onward, the people of Israel were dominated by one kingdom or another. At first it was the Babylonians, and then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. They had become accustomed to being subjugated and oppressed. Yet this prophecy would have resonated deep in their hearts. An eager desire for the child who would come, who would deliver them from their enemies, who would restore the people of God. We see this. We see this expectation in the conversation that Jesus has after his resurrection with two of his followers on the road to Emmaus. In Luke 24, 19 to 20, these followers say to Jesus, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. So these disciples expected Jesus to come and redeem Israel, to be this promised child, to deliver them from their oppressors, to reestablish the kingdom of God. And they weren't wrong to think that. The Bible promised this, and Jesus would do this, just not quite yet. They didn't have the complete picture. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He is this promised child. We saw last week, as Pastor Paul pointed out, that Jesus is the answer to all Old Testament prophecies through this excellent quote by Barry Webb that I think is worth visiting again. Barry Webb says this, All the Old Testament promises about the coming kingdom of God find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, they are not fulfilled in some very general way, but in the very specific events of his birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and coming again. This means that the fulfillment does not come all at once, but in two major phases. Isn't that good? Isn't that helpful to remember? That Jesus fulfilled this promise. He broke the curse of sin and death. He defeated our greatest enemy. Freed us from our most potent oppressor. And, notice that, and, not but, and he will come again. To deliver from us from every enemy. He will come and defeat all those who stand against him. 
I want you to notice the language that Isaiah uses in verse 5. He says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. God will disarm the enemy. He will make them powerless. In verse 4, Isaiah references God breaking the rod of the enemy as on the day of Midian. And that's a reminder to the people of God that God defeated the Midianite army who greatly outnumbered Gideon's minuscule band of fighters. It was God who won the battle that day. It is God who will win every battle since. Jesus has defeated sin and death and he will come again to defeat all those who stand against him and his people. He will reestablish his kingdom. That's the first thing this promised child will come to do. And it leads into the second, which is that he will come to reign. In verses 6 to 7 of Isaiah 9, we see that this child came not only to save, but also to reign forever. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, it's pretty clear to see in this passage that this child will come to reign. He will be the king to fulfill God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So clearly, based on the Bible, based on Isaiah 9 in 2 Samuel 7, there was an expectation among the Jewish people that there would come a great king from the line of David, a child who would come and reestablish the kingdom of God's people forever. There was an eager anticipation for this king to come, to overthrow the earthly powers, to reign on the earth. And we see that Jesus is this promised child. He fulfills this second promise in Isaiah 9. He is the king who would come in the line of David, who will rule forever, who is ruling forever over all things. Remember his words to the disciples during the Great Commission. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is right now seated at the right hand of the Father. All creation, all heaven and all earth has been subjected under him. He has yet, however, to fully exert his dominion over all the earth to its full extent. That is what will happen at Jesus' second coming. We see this picture of Jesus coming in power and might displayed in Revelation 19. Rob read that for us, and it's a beautiful picture of what our king will look like. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is what will happen when Jesus comes again. When he fulfills every aspect of this prophecy completely. We live in the time between Jesus' first and second comings, what we often refer to as the already and not yet. Jesus has already fulfilled these prophecies. He is already reigning over all creation. And yet he has still to come and fully complete these prophecies to their full extent. But all of this leaves us with an important question. The question of why is this good news? Why on earth is any of this good news? Why is the promise of a king to come and reign forever over all the earth good news? Maybe you're wondering that today. Maybe you're looking out at the world and seeing the failure of one human leader after another and thinking it's a good thing that we don't have any eternal leaders. It's a good thing our king's lives are short-lived. Maybe you're reading the Old Testament and you're seeing that David, the greatest king in the entirety of the Old Testament, had major moral failures. And you remember how brutal his descendants were, how quickly they walked away from the Lord and chose evil. And you might just be wondering why a promised king in this line, this broken line of David who will reign forever is good news whatsoever. Well, let me give you two reasons why it's good news. The first is that it's good news because of who we are. I want you to pause for a moment and think about the fact that one of the primary analogies that the Bible uses to describe us is sheep. I think that's intentional. Sheep aren't known for being very bright nor are they very powerful. They're one of the most helpless animals in existence. They're in constant need of leadership, guidance, protection, and direction. They're constantly needing protection from greater threats. So have that picture of these weak, helpless sheep in your mind and compare this with what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Face it, my friends. There are things in this world that are much more powerful than you and things that want nothing more than to destroy you, things that you are helpless to stand against. And these forces aren't just out there in the world either. They're in here. The Bible warns us that wolves will come from within the flock to destroy the sheep. And even more than that, these evil destructive forces are working against us from our very flesh. Look at what Jeremiah 17.9 says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Apostle Paul warns us time and time again that we are waging spiritual warfare against the desires of the flesh even now. When Jesus goes to the garden to pray, he warns his disciples, he says, watch and pray because the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. We are weak. We are weak and helpless. We are prone to wander away from the Lord and into destruction. And so that is good news that Jesus is king. It is the absolute best news that he will watch over us and he will care for us because we cannot hope to take care of ourselves apart from him. Amen? Amen. And secondly, it's good news that Jesus is king because of who he is. I want you to look at the words that Isaiah uses to describe this promised king. 
the words he uses to describe Jesus. He says he's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Wouldn't you want that person to be your king? Isn't that good news? It is great news that our king is a wonderful counselor, that his counsel is wise and good, that it is safe and beneficial for us to follow him. Our compasses are broken. Our counsel is foolishness. So let us delight in the good guidance of a wonderful counselor. And it's great news that our king is mighty God, that Jesus is God, and he is mighty. That we don't have a weak, ineffectual king who cannot protect us from our enemies. No, we have a king who has defeated death, who has overcome the world to take heart, Rest in the knowledge that our king is mighty. Isaiah goes on to tell us that he is everlasting father, that he is united with the father for all eternity. Jesus himself says in John 10, I and the father are one. And as a father, he cares for his children. He protects and he provides for his family. And then finally, he's the prince of peace, the one who makes peace between sinful man and holy God. The king who leads his people out of strife, out of tribulation, into peace everlasting. His is the kingdom where the lion lies down with the lamb. He is the king. There is none like him. So it is exceptionally good news that Jesus Christ is our king. It is exceptionally good news that he is a child promised to us here in Isaiah 9, 700 years before he's born. And so all of this leaves us with one final question this morning. How should we respond to this child? How should we respond to the news that Jesus is this promised child? The text gives us two things. The first is that we ought to rejoice. This is a response suggested in the song, Joy to the World. Let men their songs employ. And it's a response suggested in Isaiah 9. In verse 3 we read, You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So if all that we have seen this morning is true, if all that we know about who Jesus is is true, what he does and what he continues to do for us, then we ought to rejoice. We ought to sing louder than ever. We should sing, we should shout, we should clap, we should dance. There is no greater news than this. There is no greater joy than the joy of knowing Jesus. He has defeated death. He has conquered the grave. He has bound the devil and set the captives free. The people in darkness have seen a great light. Rejoice. Praise the Lord. Do not sit here this morning and tell me that you have seen this great light. Do not tell me that you know the good news of Jesus Christ if you can't rejoice. If you cannot lift your voice to praise the mighty name of our great Lord. Now I'm not saying that you have to be full of joy and happiness at all times. The Bible says there's a time for mourning and sadness and loss and grief. And I know that Christmas can be a complex time where these emotions conflict. But if your default position is grumbling and complaining if your default position is gloom and doubt, then it raises a question if you have seen this light, if you know the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
Because the natural response of people in darkness who have seen a great light is to rejoice. The response of people who were dead in their sins, lost without hope, and have been given new life in the free gift of grace in Jesus Christ. This is the reason I'm standing before you today. I know what it's like to live and experience the darkness of a world without hope. Now, I grew up in a Christian home, and I am blessed to have a mother who did everything in her power and then some to ensure that me and my siblings had a relationship with Jesus. And truth be told, I would not be alive today if it weren't for the way that God has used her in my life. See, my late teens and early 20s, I went through a long, intense, and prolonged battle with depression. And depression is a complex thing. There's a myriad of reasons for why I was, I was depressed. But one of the most significant factors was an overwhelming sense of guilt and shame. I grew up in a Christian home. I pledged my life and my faith, gave faith to Jesus, and I believed in Jesus from a young age. But there were some aspects of the gospel that had not fully clicked in my heart and mind. And so throughout my life, I was a sinner, and I sinned, and I hurt people in my high school career that led to a sense of guilt and shame. I felt like I was a fraud of a Christian, that I was faking it, that I didn't really have that relationship with Christ. The devil kept putting these thoughts of guilt and shame in my mind, and they spiraled, and they grew, and they grew until I was in a very dark place. I remember crying out to God, asking him to reach out and help me, and hearing nothing in return for years. I often pray the words of Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I felt trapped in despair and darkness with no way out. And it's by God's grace that I'm alive today, that I'm standing before you today. Because one day, I'm not even sure exactly which day, I had taken a week off and was volunteering at the summer camp where I grew up. And sometime during that week, I don't even know when, there's all of a sudden like a light switch flipped in my mind and the gospel clicked. And I understood, probably for the first time in my life, the true freedom from guilt and shame that comes from faith in Jesus Christ. I knew that it wasn't about how good I could be. It's about how good he was. I knew there was no guilt and no shame because Jesus had taken it all upon the cross. That my slate had been wiped clean. I finally saw the light. And let me tell you, there is nothing like that. There is no hope. There is no peace. There is no resounding joy that compares to the joy of knowing that the God of the universe has sent his son to die on the cross in your place. And that every single burden of guilt and shame, every curse of sin has been removed and laid upon the feet of Jesus Christ. There is nothing greater than knowing that you are fully known, fully loved, And fully forgiven. And so I've dedicated my life to helping other people see this, to experience the joy, the hope, the light 
that is available in Jesus Christ. And so the natural response to this, to this freedom, is to rejoice, to sing great praise to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be filled with joy and rejoicing at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we should see in this text. The first way we should respond to Jesus is joy and rejoicing. The second thing we see is that we should also worship. Now it may seem odd to you that I've separated rejoicing and worship into two separate points. But I think there's an important distinction between the two. Yes, we ought to respond to Jesus with joy and praise and rejoicing. And we should also respond by worshiping our mighty king with every aspect of our lives. Now, when I first wrote this, I was originally going to title this point something along the lines of submit or obey to capture the idea that we have a king who is in heaven, who we owe our allegiance and devotion, who we owe our very lives. Yet I think that worship is the more complete idea. I think that it captures the essence of the Christian response to the gospel of Jesus. In the preaching workshop, as Paul, Pastor Paul has mentioned, we have been working through the book Expository Exaltation by John Piper. And in it, he provides one of the best definitions of worship that I've ever come across. He says this, Worship means consciously knowing, treasuring, and showing the supreme worth and beauty of God. Let me read that for you again. Worship means consciously knowing, treasuring, and showing the supreme worth and beauty of God. That is the essence. That is the heart of the Christian life. And nowhere else is the supreme worth and beauty of God more clearly displayed than in Jesus Christ. It is often said that the Father wanted to reveal, what the Father wanted to reveal to us about himself, he did through Jesus. Through the advent of Jesus Christ, through his first and second comings, we see the ultimate display of the supreme worth and beauty of God. So the most important thing you can do this Christmas season is strive to consciously know and treasure the supreme worth and beauty of God. Because if you know this, if you treasure these truths in your heart, then they will show in your life. As a good tree cannot help but bear good fruit, so a heart that treasures the Lord will demonstrate that in their life. And not just in singing praise to God. Well, that is part of worship, and it's an important part of worship. It is not all that there is. Worship is a full-time job. It's not something that we do once a week for an hour and a half. Piper also in the book points out that there is a stunning degree of non-specificity for worship as an outward form and a radical intensification of worship as an inward experience of the heart. Now, I realize that quotes a lot, so I'll read it again. A stunning degree of non-specificity for worship as an outward form and a radical intensification of worship as an inward experience of the heart. What Piper's saying is that the Bible emphasizes that worship is about the heart. It's not really about how we worship. It is much more about when we worship, why we worship, how much we worship. It's about savoring Jesus in our hearts, 
prizing him, delighting in him, and showing the supreme worth of Jesus in our lives. It's not about singing specific songs that we like on Sunday mornings. It's not about whether we use drums or the guitar or the organ. It is about the heart, a heart that delights in the Lord. Your whole life should be worship. Your work can and should be worship. Your commute can and should be worship. When relaxing on the couch at the end of a long day can and should be worship. Worship is about prizing God in our hearts, and that ought to shape every aspect of how we live. That's what this text drives us towards this morning. It paints a beautiful picture of what the Israelite people expected to see in their coming Messiah. And even more than that, it gives us an amazing description of what we have now in Jesus Christ. Are you seeing that this morning? Are you seeing that we have a Savior who has already saved us from the curse of sin and death, who has taken our sins upon himself, who has paid the price, who has risen from the dead, defeating death once and for all, and who will come again to defeat every enemy who stands against him and his people? Are you seeing that we have the long-awaited forever king who will rule in peace, justice, and righteousness forevermore? Are you seeing that nothing in this world can happen to you that is outside of his sovereign power and authority? We have a good shepherd, a wonderful counselor, mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace, who is ruling over all creation right now, who is caring for each and every one of his people, who has promised that Good things will happen to those who love him. That he is working all things, even suffering, out for our good. It is my deepest prayer this morning that each and every one of us would meditate upon these wonderful truths. That we would treasure them in our hearts. That we would take time to reflect upon, to tell one another about the supreme beauty of the child who came into the world as a baby born in a manger who fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy. It is my earnest desire that we would grow in our ability to know Jesus, to treasure him more fully, and that this would show to the world through our lives. Oh, would our hearts be captivated by Jesus Christ. Oh, would we be satisfied in him. Oh, would we rejoice always in our amazing Savior. So let us do that now. Let us turn our attention to making a joyful noise to the light of the world who has rescued us out of darkness and into everlasting light. Let's pray together. God, we are first and foremost thankful for who you are. God, your son Jesus Christ is a mighty king, an everlasting father. God, there are so, are we lack the words, Lord, to fully articulate the majesty of Jesus Christ. Lord, so I just pray, God, that you would work in our hearts. Lord, draw near to us today. Lord, reveal in us, Lord, the supreme worth and beauty of your Son. Lord, that we would treasure him in our heart. Lord, that we would know him each and every day. Lord, that we would show the supreme worth and beauty in the way that we live. That we would go forth from this place as lights to the world, but people who have seen 
have been in darkness and have seen a great light and are transformed by that light. Lord, would you be glorified in us? God, would we be satisfied in you? And would we do all things, Lord, every aspect of our lives for the praise of your mighty name? Amen.